0: Father, as we turn to Your Holy Scripture, we want to ask that You will speak to us in a powerful way. Your Word says about itself that it is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, that it divides between soul and spirit and joint and marrow, and that it discerns, it knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And so, Father, we pray that You might wield Your saving Word today that You might wield Your sanctifying Word, that You might wield Your strengthening Word, that You might wield Your Word that not only breaks us down, but also builds us up, that not only brings us to lowliness before You, but exalts us at Your right hand. Lord, take Your Word and do Your work in our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Samuel chapters 9 and 10 is our text today. We're walking through a series entitled, Kingdom Through Chaos and Crisis. God is building His kingdom. He's building it ever since He created His people. He's building it through a variety of different events and people and circumstances and situations. But let us never mistake the reality that God is building His kingdom. And and in First Samuel, what we find is that the people of God don't like the means that God is using to build His kingdom. They're not satisfied or content with the leaders that God has chosen to direct His kingdom and lead His people. In fact, the people of God don't want God as their king. They want a man as their king. And so, in chapter 8 last week, we saw that they demand a king. And God says, but I'm your king, and I love you, and I'm faithful to you, and I deliver you out of your, your problems, and, and, and I give you victory in your battles. I've never failed you one time. And, 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 and I'm going to warn you that if you reject me as your king, then what you're going to get is a human king who doesn't give to you and provide for you, but rather takes from you and robs you. And they say, no, no, no. We really, we really must have a human king. And so God gives them what they want. And we see this in chapters 9 and 10. And so, I initially titled the message today, We Get What We Ask For. Because last week's message was, We Want What We Want. But the more we look at this passage today, you're going to see that it's really just an an incredibly interesting and puzzling story. And so the title of the message, it probably is on the screen at this point, Donkeys, Delirium, and Divine Love. And so the text starts out in verse 1 and following and tells us that there is a man named Kish. Now we can expect that this is some weeks or months after Samuel has sent all the people of Israel back to their homes after they've demanded a king. And so there's this man named Kish, he's of this tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin being the smallest of the twelve tribes, the lowliest, the one who probably has the least respect among all the different tribes. Now, what, what, the difference between a tribe and a, and a clan is this. A tribe would be a group of families that connect themselves back to one of the twelve Israel brothers, okay? And then a clan would be a group of families within that tribe. And so, what, what the text is telling us is that there's this man named Kish, he's a Benjaminite, and he's of that smallest tribe of Benjamin, and kind of of the least of the clans within that tribe, but he's wealthy, and by wealthy, it doesn't mean that he's got a lot of money piled up over at Noble Bank or Farmers and Merchant because there, there actually aren't, there isn't coinage during this time. By wealthy, it means that he has a lot of material. He has a lot of goods. He has a lot of animals. He's a farmer. And he's a good one at that because he does well at it. He is considered a rich man. Now, Kish, somehow or another, loses his donkeys. Now, when we hear that he loses his donkeys... We're thinking, well, what's the, what's the big deal? I mean, the Limbaugh's have two donkeys at their house, and I'm still trying to figure out what the functionality of them uh, is. <laughs> And Jamie smiles with a gracious smile at me. Now, I will say we haven't seen a coyote within 25 feet of the of the barn in the last nine or ten months. So maybe maybe they are fending off the coyotes. But nevertheless, we need not impose our understanding of the functionality or lack thereof of donkeys in our culture all the way back to 3,000 years ago. Because there was great use for donkeys, and he was considered wealthy because he had a lot of them. And so for whatever reason, in some way, the donkeys get let loose. They, 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 they find their way through a gate or whatever the case may be, and they're gone. And so Kish looks at his son Saul and says, Saul, I need you to go get our donkeys. Now, if you, if you think about it, if a donkey is, is worth like cattle, then every donkey represents uh, a significant amount of, 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 of wealth for them and vitality of their life. And so, I need you to go rescue those, Kish says to his son Saul. And, and he says, I want you to take a servant with you to go find the donkeys. And if you look down at chapter 9, they take off. Saul and, and, and one of the servants takes off and they go into the land of Ephraim. And they can't find the donkeys there. And so they go through the land of Shalishah, and they can't find the donkeys there. And so then they go through the land of Shalim. They can't find the donkeys there. And then they finally pass through the land of Benjamin, and they still can't find the donkeys. Man, they're looking everywhere. Surely they're asking people, have you seen or heard of donkeys? And they're nowhere to be found. And so what happens? They're, they're in this land of zooth. And Saul says, Saul says, like a good son, Saul says to his servant, you know what, we've been gone now a few days and I'm pretty sure that dad is more concerned about our lives than he is about the lives of these donkeys. We probably should be getting back to um, our home so that we can let him know that we're okay. And so what does the servant say? He says, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Verse 6, behold, there's a man of God in this city. Now in this city must mean Ramah. Rama is where uh, Samuel lives, right? It's where he's built an altar. It's where he worships, where people come to hear him. Okay? There must be a man of, there is a man of God in the city, and he's a man who's held in honor. All that he says comes true. So, so let's go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way that we should go. Frankly, I don't know why the servant doesn't call Samuel by name. Because all of Israel knows about Samuel's judgeship. All of Israel knows about Samuel's leadership. But for whatever reason, he calls him a man of God. And so Saul says, but but if we go, we don't have anything to bring to this prophet, this seer. What what are we going to do? We don't don't have anything to offer him. Because in those days, if you were to to approach a prophet or approach a seer, you would really need to pay him if he was going to tell you what you wanted to hear. And so the servant says, well, actually, I, I have a, a, little, a little piece of silver. Uh, I think he says in there it's something like a quarter of a shekel. Well, a, a shekel is like two-fifths of an ounce. And so if it's a quarter of a shekel, I mean, it's like a tenth of an ounce of a piece of silver. Nevertheless, it, even though it's a humble piece of silver, it would be sufficient enough for them to pay the prophet to tell them where the donkeys are. Now, They're they're concerned about the donkeys. They're concerned about what's going on with what their endeavors are. And so he said, let's go. And so Saul agrees, verse done. He says, well said, come, let's go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. And as they went up to the hill of the city, they met young women coming out to draw water. And they said, is the seer here? That is, is the prophet Here. I found it interesting as I read that about 25 times. I read the text 25 times or so this week. And I just thought about the various times in the Old Testament where women were going out to draw water. And God uses that event to advance His glory or build His kingdom or bring marriages about that bring children about that bring the kingdom of God about. A very interesting thing there. But that's exactly what goes on here. And they say, we want to know about the seer. And they well, he is. He, he lives here. And he's just come from out of town, and we know that he's going to be going up to the high place of worship today, and they're going to have a dinner, a banquet, and and it's going to be a beautiful thing. And we know that if you kind of intercept him before he goes up there, you can talk to him. And, And so you should go. They instruct him. You should go now. And so as Saul and his servant approach the city gate, they see... Samuel. They don't know that it's Samuel, and so Saul approaches Samuel, and he says, can you point me to the seer? Do you know where he lives? And Samuel says, I am the seer. I am the prophet. Now, so far, what we're just seeing is this hunt for donkeys, and so they're thinking that the man of God is going to help them find the donkeys. We're going to come back to verses 15 and 17 in just a moment, but but Samuel says, I am the seer, go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I'll let you go, and will tell you all that is on your mind. Verse 19. And then look at verse 20. He says, ask for your donkeys that were lost three days ago. Don't set your mind on them, for they've been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Now that is a very cryptic question. Look at, look at it again. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? All we have to do, church, is ask, what is it that Israel desires? What? A king. They desire a king. And Samuel the seer, the prophet says, Is it not for you? Is it not for your clan? And so he says, You know what? Um, I want to take you up to the high place. And I want you to worship with me today, and I want you to participate in this banquet that we have, and that 's exactly what he does he takes He takes Saul and he takes Samuel and i 'm sorry, he takes Saul, and he takes uh, Saul's servant and goes up to this high place, likely kind of made of rocks and pebbles that 's high and lifted up and certainly it was, it was, it, that, that high place was possibly borrowed from the idea of Canaanite gods and Canaanite worship, but but Samuel used it in order to have a place and an altar and a place of worship for the people of God to go up high in order to give Him glory and honor and praise that they might worship Him and read His Scriptures and pray to Him and and have offerings and sacrifices unto Him. And He says, I want you to join Me. And as He gives Saul the special place at this banquet, He has reserved already in place this special piece of meat for Saul as if he is the guest of honor. And that's exactly what happens. They enjoy this meal. And Samuel is beginning to usher Saul into this greater understanding of what this hunt for donkeys is all about. And so they ate with Samuel that day. Look at verse 25. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof. And he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up! that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here for a while, that I may make known to you the Word of God. Now listen, from Saul's perspective from Saul's servant's perspective, from everybody in Rama's perspective, from the ladies who are going to get water's perspective, from everybody's perspective except Samuel, all this is is a hunt for donkeys and a weird appropriation of food at the high place and worship there. And some, for some reason or another, Samuel's treating these guests as if they are something special. That's really all that's going on. But if you look down at verse 15, we see the key that unlocks the door to what's really going on here and what's really going to happen in chapter 10. So let's look at it. The day before Saul came, the Lord, that is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, the King of Israel, revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, And you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. Now let's just stop there for a moment. First of all, we see that God is working here. God is working. We'll come back to that later. But we would expect him that if if Samuel is to anoint somebody to do something, we would expect him to say he's going to anoint him to be what? King. But he says prince. And that word prince could literally be translated leader. I just think it's worth observing that God doesn't say he's going to be king. God is not relinquishing his rule of Israel. God is not relinquishing his love for Israel. God is not going to hand over all of the keys to this guy because God is the only one who not only loves Israel, but has the power to carry out redemptive love. And so... You're going to anoint him to be prince over, is it his people Israel or my people Israel? My people, Israel. And but look, look at the love of God. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. You know, sometimes we make statements like, you know, God does things the way that He does them, but if I was God, I would do things a little differently. After reading chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, I think there is a sense in which if I was God, I would have let Israel just go their own way. Maybe just found another group of people in order to invest my life in because they obviously don't appreciate my investment into their lives. But God is not like us. God does not leave us. He does not forsake us. He does not throw us in the trash. He does not get rid of us. He pursues us. He loves us even in the midst of our sin, even in the midst of our rebellion, even in the midst of our rejection of Him. He will not let us go. And and the text shows us that because He says, I have seen them and I am going to pursue them even in their sin. And so what happens Samuel gives the word of God to Saul who is simply out to find the donkeys seize them and bring them back to his dad so look at chapter 10 in chapter 10 Samuel anoints anoints Saul this is a this is a private anointing this is a personal anointing Saul is tall he is strong he is handsome And Samuel is old and struggling, so it's very likely that he has Saul bend down probably to get on his knees. And and the law tells us that anointing oil was a really special oil. It was a mixture of olive oil and and different herbs and spices that was only to be used for special reasons to anoint uh, special people for service. And so what happens... Samuel takes this special anointing oil and anoints Saul. And look at verse 1. Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over His people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over His heritage. That is rich language. In other words, God has a heritage. It is the people of Israel. And He's calling you to be a trustworthy steward of His heritage that you may lead them well and deliver them out of the hand of those who would oppress them, chiefly here the Philistines. And so so God knows that Samuel should give to Saul signs that confirm his calling. Because who is Saul? Saul? Saul is this backwater farmer's boy from the smallest of the clans and the least of the, tri- of the, least of the clans of that tribe. And he's going he's gonna to second guess whether or not he's truly been called. And so this is what Samuel says. I'm going to give you some signs to prove to you that you are in fact the one who is anointed to be prince over God's people, Israel. Said so first of all, there's going to be at uh, Rachel's tomb, what you're going to find at Rachel's tomb are um, these men, all right? And, and, and they're, going to, they're going to share with you that uh, your donkeys have been found. And then you're going to go down beyond there, and you're going to go to this oak, this tree of Tabor. And what you're going to find there are three men who are going to worship God at Tabor, and what, what they're going to be carrying are three young goats and three loaves of bread and, and, and some wineskins. And they're going to give you a couple pieces of bread. And then you're going to go further down to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you'll meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp and tambourine and flute and lyre and before them. And they're prophesying. Now, when I use the phrase delirium, that's really... Um, a lot of what I'm thinking, this is an ecstatic group of prophets and musicians and worshipers who are praising God with their harps and with their lyre, with their flute and with their tambourine and their drums and they're, and they're singing the praises of God and they're being very exciting and exuberant with all that they're doing and he's saying you're going to see them and then what's going to happen is the Spirit of the Lord is going to rush on you and you're going to prophesy with them and you're going to be turned into another man. And when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do. For God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. And look at verse 9, church. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And simply put, the narrator says that everything that Samuel said would happen, happens. It's as simple as that. He sees the three guys, they tell him about the the donkeys. He sees the three men going up to worship with the goats and the bread and all of that, and they give him two pieces of bread. They go a little bit further and... um, Exactly what he has uh, prophesied happens, as, and then what happens? Saul engages himself in the worship of God and prophesying, and I think the text is wanting to tell us, church, that this is completely out of Saul's character. This is completely out of who he is. He doesn't do things like this. He's just a a lowly farmer's boy from the tribe of Benjamin. And here he is in his hometown and in his area. And they're like, what in the world has come over this this man? What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And then a man says, and who is their father? Father. He's a nobody. What's going on here? And so it became a proverb. It's Saul among the prophets. And so when he finished prophesying, he came to the high place, the text tells us. And, and there is an obvious change in Saul's disposition. There's an obvious change in his demeanor and in his activity and his excitement level. There is a change in him, and it strikes Saul's uncle very odd. And so Saul's uncle says, Man, where did you go? And he said, well, to seek the donkeys, like my dad told me. You know, when, when we saw that they couldn't be found, we went to Samuel. And, and Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel had to say to you because you are a different dude, all right? And, and Saul simply said, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he didn't tell him anything. It's like he's trying to keep it a secret. It's like he's, a reluctant, he's reluctant to embrace the role in which God had given to him to serve. Or at least it appears that way. But church, before we look at this last section, I want to make, I want to make an observation that I'm not declaring as absolute fact, but I think it's worth noting as a church. When Samuel tapped Saul to be the anointed prince... And he says, this is what you're going to do. You are to save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. Save them from the hand of the surrounding enemies. And he says, "Whatever you shall do whatever your hand finds you to do. That phrase is used back in Judges as a phrase to indicate that God's leaders are to go into battle to fight their battles for them against anybody who would oppress them. And, and he says, that's what your role is going to be. And there's a garrison of Philistines in your hometown. And yet, it doesn't tell us that Saul does anything about the garrison. It doesn't tell us that Saul leads a group of guys to push them out of the area. It's just missing. And I'm just asking the question, is this the first indication that Saul is not only a reluctant king, but he's a disobedient king because he's been called to be a deliverer and it doesn't tell us that he does any delivering there. I'm just asking that question. But let's continue in verse 17 because this is just kind of an amazing turn of events. Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you've rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses and you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribe's and by your thousands. You have the man of God who speaks the word of God and he expresses the love of God, the displeasure of God, and the faithfulness of God in this. Look, he says, listen, this is who I am. I know y'all are excited about getting a king. I know you you think I'm going to give you a king and I've said I'm going I'm to go ahead and give him to you. But before this becomes a great celebratory thing, before we just kind of sweep everything else under the rug, I want to make it known yet again that I have been your deliverer. I have been the faithful one who has carried you through thick and thin, who has swept you out of the pit of dismay and darkness and slavery and all that you've experienced in your past wanderings. I have been a great... King And I don't want you to forget that. You see that at the very beginning? I brought you up. But today, you're rejecting me. And so, it's time for me to set this prince over you. Verse 20. So Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. It is in the way in which they kind of carried out their appointees. They used this system of lots. And what the text tells us is that the lot fell on Benjamin tribe and then the lot fell on the clan of which Saul lived and then the lot fell on Saul himself and so when they sought him they could not find Saul so they inquired of the Lord and they said is there a man still to come and the Lord said behold he has hidden himself among the baggage he has hidden himself among the baggage. And so they run, and they take him from the baggage. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. And I just can't help but see a little bit of humor here in verse 24. Samuel says to all the people, do you see whom the Lord has chosen? This one that you had to grab out of the baggage? Out of the luggage? There is none like him among all the people but He's exactly what they're looking for. He's taller. He's more handsome. He's everything that they want on the outside, and He mirrors what they want to accomplish. They want to be just like everybody else around them except better. And so He says, this fits exactly what you're looking for. And all the people shouted, Long live the King! And Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book. And he laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own home. And you think, well, that's going to be the end of it. No. Saul went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. You see, God is still working in the midst of their rebellious desire for a king. He's not going to leave them. He's actually going to provide for them, and he's going to strengthen them for the task at hand. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? I don't think this is an, an indication so much on, on Saul as it is their pessimism about um, the people, about the king, and about how God works. And they despised Saul, and they brought him no present, but he held his peace. As this is a story of, of, uh, of so many layers that we could spend probably four or five weeks in this passage, but I think the one thing that God wants us to see 3,000 years later is that in His infinite wisdom and in His unfailing love, the Lord gives wayward people the kind of king that they want to demonstrate the kind of king that He is. He gives wayward people the kind of king that they want to demonstrate the kind of king that He is. I think that what God wants us to take away is that behind every event in our lives, behind every boring day, behind every difficult day at work, behind every heart-wrenching loss of someone that we love, by every victory that we experience on a playing field, by every success that we have on a, on a job, or at a job site, behind the thrill of marriage, and even behind the agony of divorce, behind everything that we experience in life is the hidden hand of God. Always working. Always loving. Always moving us toward His kingdom, His glory, ultimately His Son, for our good and for His magnifying of His glorious worth. I think that's what He wants us to see. God's always working in the details of your life. God is always working in those details are intricately woven and connected to His commitment to build His kingdom and to produce joy in us and to save the lost. And so, I want to give you some, some thoughts today. I have one application for you, church. You're thinking, what in the world does God want to say to me through this story and through this message? And and I believe that the singular application to, to these two chapters is church, know who your God is and know what your God does. Know who your God is and what your God does. I don't want to tell you that from Saul's perspective, and from the women's perspective, and from the servant of Saul's perspective, and from the people who were gathered around up at the high place who were worshiping's perspective, all they could see is there's these guys looking for donkeys, and somehow they get the special place at the dinner and the special meat, and all of it doesn't really make any sense. All they're seeing is coincidence, and all they're seeing is just the happenstance of daily life and problems, and the triviality of a loss of some some donkeys. But I want to tell you something about who our God is and how our God works, is that He is at work. If you're taking notes under your application, I think the one thing that you want to write down first is that God is always working. He's always working in every aspect of every human life and all of redemptive history to provide for His children, to build His kingdom, to exalt His Son, and to magnify His glory. He's always at work. I uh, I was 16 years old, finished a Thursday practice football at the stadium, Coach has some popsicles for us right after practice, day before the game. We go into the locker room. He says, I got somebody to speak to you today. And so we're licking on some popsicles. And a guy walks through the door of the field house from Montgomery, Alabama, with a ministry called FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And he stands before us and he begins to preach a message about this man Gideon from a book called Judges. And he talks about how God took this this little old guy from this little old tribe and called him out to be a leader and a deliverer. And I'm 16 years old. I've never had a speaker come to talk to our football team. I'm sitting on a wrestling mat. I remember it like it was yesterday. And I'm listening to this guy speak and I'm looking around at my 40 or 50 teammates and you could hear a pin drop that day. And as I'm looking around and I'm hearing this message, I'm being gripped by God's greatness and His call on my life and Him him drawing me to Himself. And I'm also looking around my teammates and I'm saying to myself, wow, this is having an impact on my team. The guy says amen after his prayer and goes and gets in his car and leaves. Two years later, I'm playing baseball at Central Alabama And that guy starts an FCA at my college. And I get to hear a speaker from a football player at the University of Alabama come and share with us about God's call on life. And I just happened to go that night. It was supposed to be fun. They said there was going to be free food there. And so I went and I heard this message. And God begins to draw my heart. And two weeks later or so, One of my coaches hosts an FCA Bible study in my, I'm sorry, in his little apartment. And he opens up to Revelation chapter 3 where Jesus says to the church, I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I feel like I'm going to just vomit you out of my mouth. And our coach challenged us, are you hot, are you cold, or are you lukewarm? God used that passage in that Bible study that night to draw me into a vibrant, intense relationship with Him. And He also used that for me to get plugged into FCA so that for the next year, the coach asked me to be the captain of FCA so that he asked me to stand up in front of all the athletes the very next year in August. And I stood out in front of about 100 athletes that night. And in the crowd, I saw this young lady from White Plains, Alabama, who just kind of stuck out among all of them. I said, I've got to get to know this girl. And so I shared my testimony, and then I went and met this girl. And then after about four or five months of getting to know her, I asked her out on a date. And we go on another date, and we get to know one another, and then we get to be engaged. And then we get married in college, and we go to Montgomery. And I start getting plugged in with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, FCA, And then what happens? They say, we want to send you out as a missionary somewhere in the state of Alabama. You can go to Tuscaloosa. You can go to Dothan. You can go to Gadsden or possibly Anniston. And about that time, Jamie's mother's cancer came back with a vengeance. It spread throughout all of her lymph nodes and into her brain. And so we said, we need to get back to Anniston. And so we got back to Anniston, and I started FCA in this area. And we would go to Jamie's mom's house each day and sit with her, encourage her. And after about six or eight months, she died. And we grieved, and we struggled. And then right after that, we experienced more family grief and more family struggle, and then in the midst of that, I'm doing FCA at Aniston High School. And this guy says, I'd like for my pastor to come and speak if he can. And I said, absolutely. And Aniston was an all-black team with all-black players, so I assumed that his pastor was a black guy. And lo and behold, Bob St. John walks up on the football field. I was really surprised. And Bob walks in with his suspenders and his dress shoes. And he had a trifold thing that he was going to show these guys. And he looked at the circumstance and he said, I don't think I'm going to use the trifold. He folded it up and he then preached the gospel to 55 players at Aniston. And as I heard him preach, the word of God went forth like I had not heard of all the Sundays and Sundays and Sundays that Jamie and I had visited in all the churches. So I said, I've got to get to know this guy. And so I got to know him. And then we started visiting his church. And then we become members. And then all the elders at Anniston Bible Church said, we think you've got some gifts for ministry. We want to take you out on our dime to the Shepherds Conference in Los Angeles. We think it'll help you. So I go with them. I mean, how how can you pass up a free trip to Los Angeles? And so I go with them, and I meet the leaders of the Master's Seminary. And within two and a half months, we... Um, put our house up uh, for rent, we sell our vehicles, we pack all our things in a car, and we go to Los Angeles. And for the next three and a half years, I'm trained for pastoral ministry and preaching ministry. And after that time, they call us and say, we want you to come back and help lead our church and be an elder and a pastor and lead students and preach and guide. And then we do that. But before we do that, I'm studying for an ordination preparation exam. Y'all stay with me. I'm studying for an ordination preparation exam with four of my classmates. It's 5 o'clock p.m. on a Friday night. The phone rings. And Jamie says, Ryan, are you going to get that? I said, "Nah, I'm studying. Let's just let it go. Jamie said, well, I, I think I'll get it. And so right before the machine clicked or they hung up, Jamie picked up the phone. And it was Los Angeles County DCFS. And they said, we have a child. We will know if you'd be interested in taking under your care. September 15th, 2006. It's Carson Anthony Limbaugh. We said, "Uh, Well, let us pray about it. They said, We'll give you five minutes. (laughs) We prayed for five minutes. We said, We'll take him. He's never left our home ever since. We come back to Anniston, start pastoring. After about four years, I get an opportunity to pastor a church south of Birmingham. I go back to the elders meeting. I say, guys, what do you think I should do? One of the elders said, we think you should plant a church. About that time, I meet with Carlton Weathers at Frontera Restaurant, just a happenstance lunch, and he says, hey, we think we need to plant another church, and we think that you should be a part of that, and we should partner with Aniston Bible Church. A year later, Redeemer Church is planted. Nine months later, we're at 1760 Friendship Road. Somewhere in that, Chris Heitch picks up an Anson star and sees a home for rent. It happens to be owned by my father-in-law. We happen to meet Chris and Laura and his kids. Then they happen to come and become a part of Redeemer Church. All of these events and all of these relationships and all of these things that we have in our lives, the ups and downs, the pains and the thrills, The cancers, the deaths, the adoptions, the the difficulties, the disappointments, the problems, the thrills, the, the advancements of the gospel, and then the detractions thereof, it seems like. It's all under the mighty hand of a sovereign God who is working every detail out in our lives for His glory and for His praise. And I want to tell you, You may be going through difficulty right now. You may be going through all kinds of problems that I have no idea about. But I want to tell you, God is at work. God is at work in your life. God is at work in my life. And because we are in this faith family called Redeemer Church, we're all intricately involved in one another's lives. And so whatever your problems are, they're my problems. And whatever your thrills and victories are, they're my thrills and victories. And I know that no matter how difficult it is, I know that God at the end of the day is going to strengthen your faith. He's going to build your family. He's going to say to you that I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And at the end of the day, I will magnify my name. Through providing for your every need. Hallelujah. Yeah. God is at work. Right. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Let me just say a few more things about God and I'll close. I want to say that God speaks, He is not silent. He reveals Himself, He reveals His will, He reveals His ways, He reveals His wisdom, He reveals His Word to His people. We are not in the dark. He spoke to Samuel, He spoke to Saul, He spoke to Israel, and He speaks to us. I want to tell you something about my experience that I just shared with you. The common thread that runs through everything that God did in our lives was the Word of God. It was the Word of God. I heard the Word of God preached when I was in FCA and it drew me closer to God. I heard the Word of God preached underneath a goalpost at Anniston High School and it drew me closer to God. I heard the Word of God declared when I went out to a conference and it drew me closer to God. I heard the Word of God declared and, and God then began to provide and protect and guide and strengthen us. I want to tell you something, church. I want to tell you. If you want to know that God is at work in your life and you want to have trust in Him and belief in Him in the midst of the most difficult days and darkest moments, then you've got to listen to Him speak to you. Listen to Him. You cannot have confidence in the hidden hand of God if you're not listening to the overt and loud voice of God. And so listen to the preached Word. Open up the Bible and read it. If you want to hear God speak out loud, then you just read it out loud. But listen to God speak because it is there where you can find confidence in what He's doing in your life. God speaks. God loves. He loves He doesn't throw us away when we fail. He doesn't disown us when we tank everything. He works with us. He works for us. He pursues us. He takes care of us. He always meets our needs. God loves us. And I think that when we read chapters 9 and 10, what we can see is this melodic theme that God is not going to turn away from His people. He's going to press into them. Even in the midst of our sin and our rebellion against Him and our our harsh words about Him, He is still still going to pursue us in love. He loves us. And I don't think there is any greater demonstration of the love of God than when we see this first king who fails in so many ways that he provides an ultimate king who succeeds in every single way. You know, the first king, he was real tall, really good looking, chiseled-faced, everything you'd want to see every day and look at and say, that's our leader. The Scripture tells us about the ultimate king. He really wasn't much to look at. He wasn't wealthy. There wasn't nothing great, obviously, about him on the external. Scripture tells us about this first king is that he is reticent. He is resistant to become king. You find him hiding in the luggage. You find him kind of being in secret about when people ask him. But I will tell you about the ultimate king. When he is asked, are you the king of the Jews? He says, it is as you say. And he takes the punishment that the king of the Jews is is required to take on the cross for us. Listen, there's one king in the book of Samuel who hides in the luggage. There is another king who gets on the cross at Calvary and exposes himself for everybody to see. Why? Because he loves us. He is a loving king. He is a gracious king. And he is willing to humiliate himself to draw us closer to him. God loves us. I also want to say this about God. He works, He speaks, He loves, He laughs. He laughs. He laughs. Now, that verb is not used, but as the story unfolds, we clearly see that the man who will now shepherd the nation of Israel is the same man who can't find the donkeys. That's funny. God has a sense of humor. You know, God invented humor. And I think there's a sense in which as we step back from 1 uh, 1 Samuel 9 and 10, what we need to see is that the old king, that is God, sits on his throne and rules over the entire world while the new king hides in the luggage. That's really funny. God has a sense of humor. He laughs at us sometimes and laughs with us. And then I just want to say God builds. He builds his kingdom by establishing a human kingship. And he establishes the first kingship. Why? So that there can be an ultimate king in Jesus Christ. That every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is in fact Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want to ask you, if you will, just bow your head and your hearts and music team if you'll come up and lead us in worship. One of the questions that I ask when I prepare sermons for Sundays is that how does this passage address our unbelief? How does it expose areas where we're tempted not to trust God? And church, I just want to say that I believe that we are tempted to say My circumstances are too complex. My problems are too deep. There is no way that God can deliver me, or even if He can, there is no way God will deliver me out of the mess that I have made of my life. We're tempted to believe that. We're tempted to believe that the grace of God and the love of God extends to everybody in the world if they'll only cry out to Jesus, and that applies to everybody except us. And I just want to say to you right now to give you some... some meat to chew on, that God's grace is not only sufficient for you, but it is for you. God's love is directed right at your heart. And all you have to do is embrace what He's doing in your life for your joy, for the building of His kingdom, for the magnifying of His Son, and the praise of His glory. Would you think about that right now and give over to God any area of unbelief in your heart. And while we sing, if there's an area of unbelief, if there's an area where you're not trusting the providence of God, if you're not trusting the hidden hand of God behind your problems and your issues, I would encourage you to come down to one of these prayer benches and offer up your confession of not trusting God and asking God to build in you faith that He is at work in your life. There's a theological term called providence. Providence, you'll never actually find it in the Bible, but it's all over the Bible. You ever read the book of Esther? You ever read the book of Esther? One of the interesting things about that book is that you'll never find the name of God in that whole book. But when you read it and you finish it, you're like, God's hand is all over that story. Amen. Yeah. Providence is God's continual work. In the details of our lives, whether we see it or not, as He builds His kingdom, brings joy to His people, and saves the lost. I'm gonna tell you, some of God's providences are exhilarating. I mean, on the day that you adopt a son, and another day you adopt two sons. On a day that you plant a church and people rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ. On a day that's filled with people from from all sorts of walks of life and all crooks and crannies of this county and we sing praises. These are exhilarating providences of God. I'll tell you, some providences are painful. Some of them hurt. They even scar us. But what we must never do is take painful providences and somehow believe that God is not at work in those things. Because God takes hurts and He takes scars and He takes all kinds of problems and He uses them, as this song just said, for our good and His glory. Don't ever, ever, ever forget that. So no matter how pleasurable one of His providences are, and no matter how painful one of them are, always trust that at the mountaintop or in the valley or anywhere in between, God is at work in your life. That's the call to respond today. The call to respond is to trust this God that you know. Trust this God that you see working. And when you don't see Him working, fall back on the reality that you know He's at work in your life. Amen. Amen? Let's sing this final song with the knowledge of our great God.